It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this... Not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, the chemical that causes locusts to swarm. And a project using music to study synchronisation. I'm Sharmini Bandel. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. As ever, our regular coronavirus-specific segment, Coronapod, will be appearing later on in the podcast. If you're just here for that, I'll put the timings in this week's show notes so you can skip straight to it. However, I would suggest you stick around as there's plenty of great non-corona science coming up. In fact, Shamini, what have we got first this week? Well, over the past few months, plagues of locusts have been devastating crops across Africa. The sheer size of the record-breaking swarms is leaving farmers fearful for their livelihoods and communities with dwindling food supplies. And yet, locusts aren't always so devastating. In fact, they spend most of their lives as solitary creatures. What triggers their swarming behaviour has been a long-standing mystery. Until now. A group from the Chinese Academy of Sciences in Beijing has discovered a pheromone which they believe is responsible for the change the chemical signal that turns Jekyll into Hyde. We couldn't get hold of the authors for this podcast, but reporter Jeff Marsh spoke to entomologist Leslie Vossall from the Rockefeller University in New York. These insects are crazy, so they start out as solitary, peaceable insects that nibble on food uh, now and again, But once you get them together into a group of more than a small number, they turn into a mob. They change how they look. So they change from this nice green grasshopper look to this menacing brown look. And then they take flight and migrate in enormous numbers and settle into agricultural fields and strip them of all crops. And then they get up and they fly to the next field, strip that crop. And, uh, and keep going. And it is, it's an unbelievably devastating effect on human agriculture and life. I'm Leslie Vossall, professor at Rockefeller University in New York. 
and I am a molecular neurobiologist and I really care about how humans smell smells in the environment and how insects smell smells in the environment and how they smell humans. A, s- a slight tangent then for you, we're here to talk about how locusts smell locusts essentially. There's a real sort of Jekyll and Hyde vibe to their to their lifestyle, isn't there? No, absolutely. They become completely different creatures. There's almost no precedent in biology for their behavior. And am I right in saying that it's been long suspected that there's some sort of molecule, a pheromone, that forms a sort of master switch from that calm, solitary form into these devastating swarms? Absolutely. And people have been searching for that pheromone for a very long time because it's an interesting biological puzzle, number one. But also, number two, if you found that pheromone, you could, of course, use it to lure solitary locusts, trap them, and prevent the riotous mob from forming. Well, perhaps we should sort of cut to the chase. The authors have, it seems, fairly conclusively nailed their suspect and identified this pheromone as something called four-vinyl anisole, which probably means very little to most people. But perhaps we could discuss how they got to that result. This, this is an amazing series of experiments. When I was sent this manuscript, I just gasped and I thought, this is unbelievable. They finally solved this long-standing, centuries-old problem. And they did everything that one would expect of a pheromone hunt. What's your checklist? How do you provide robust, gold-standard evidence that this is the pheromone creating the switch? You do that by sampling the air around the locust and finding the kinds of smell molecules that are in the air. Do the analytical chemistry to generate the list of molecules. Go down the list to find out which one aggregates, causes them to aggregate. Then the key experiment, you chemically synthesize that molecule. So you you make an artificial version of whatever the locust was producing. And then you ask, does the chemical synthetic variant of, of what you think the pheromone is have the same effect? And then the authors extend that, don't they? And they go on to show specifically which receptor type and where the receptor type is. It sounds seriously involved, the research. That's right. So um, this paper compresses what would be decades of work into a single paper. So not only um, identifying the molecule, showing that the synthetic variant has the same activity as the stuff that the locusts make. Then they ask this question of how are the locusts smelling it? And so they do recordings of individual cells on the antenna. There are thousands of different cells. And then they puff over um, these individual compounds for vinyl anisole and identify cells that respond to this putative pheromone. They then have a long list of odorant receptor genes that could be detecting the pheromone. So these would be the proteins sitting in the neurons in the locust antenna that are actually binding to the pheromone. And in these really beautiful experiments, they put these genes into cells, force those cells to express this locust receptor. So you have tissue culture cells smelling the putative pheromone. And then they make a match. This particular receptor is the closest match to what the locust is actually using uh, to smell the compounds. And then as if that wasn't enough evidence, they then, in a world where, you know, CRISPR gene editing is, is more easily applied, they knocked out that specific receptor and lo and behold, the behavior was stopped. That's right. So uh, a key prediction, if you have the right receptor, if you make an animal that lacks the receptor, it should no longer respond to the pheromone. The mutant retains a little bit of activity, probably because there's additional 
chemical components to have a little bit of activity. But the mutant is is very, very defective. So that was a beautiful genetic validation using modern techniques to make a locust that's impervious to the pheromone. Obviously, it's very cool that we've now got the specific identity of this pheromone that we've been searching for for such a long time. But beyond that pure science factoid, how can this new knowledge be useful in terms of stopping these devastating swarms? Um, The authors have already shown the way toward the deployment of this molecule. So you can put the molecule out on bait traps, as, as they've shown in their paper, and you will attract locusts. I think that the key is to come up with something that has the same activity as 4-vinyl anisole, but is amped up, so it's it's 100 times more potent, and then use that as a, as a super juiced-up pheromone version. As you said, you uh, come from a background of mosquito biology. I suppose an idea could be borrowed from that field in terms of, yeah, releasing knockout locusts into the wild that don't respond to this pheromone. Yeah, this is another idea, again, that could be borrowed from insect friends, the mosquitoes, that are probably an even more intractable problem. So the authors in this paper have generated mutants that don't respond to the pheromone. You could, in principle, um, generate a whole race of locusts that take over the populations, and now they will neither produce the pheromone nor smell it, would be the prediction. That was Leslie Vossel. You can find a News & Views article she's written about this, along with the paper, in the show notes. Also, thanks to Baudevain O'Day for the migratory locust field recordings. Next up on the show, it's time for Coronapod, where myself, Noah Baker and Amy Maxman discuss the latest coronavirus updates. Now, in the past, we've kept the regular Nature podcast a corona-free zone. So if you want to skip this segment, then make sure you check out the show notes for the timings of everything else that's coming up. But for now, Amy and Noah, hi, thanks for joining me. Hi. Hi, Ben. This week, we're going to be talking about potential treatments. Now, we've talked about vaccines a lot, and they're a ways off yet. So until they're available, it seems like treatment options for COVID-19 are limited. We've got dexamethasone, which seems to help if you're you know, seriously ill. And there's remdesivir, which maybe shortens someone's time in hospital if they are sickened. But there's another group of things that researchers are looking at, and that's monoclonal antibodies. Now, they've been used for a while now for different diseases, but they're really under the spotlight when it comes to, to COVID-19. Yeah, so we've talked a lot about antibody testing. So that's looking for these immunoglobulins, these little proteins that are produced in the body in response to antigens, which are these little markers on the outside of the virus. And antibody therapies are an attempt to generate these antibodies artificially to sort of help kickstart people's immune systems and I suppose piggyback off that natural defense to try to give people a fighting chance against COVID. And people have been looking into these for quite some time and it's plodding along. They could potentially be quite important. Usually monoclonal antibodies are mostly used for things like cancers and autoimmune diseases. Yeah, there are a couple of efforts in particular to produce therapies using these monoclonal antibodies that are coming along. Yeah, there was a recent preprint out showing that one of them made by Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, which is sort of a newer company that uses humanized mice in order to kind of generate what these antibodies are. They have some early results from monkeys showing that monkeys who are exposed to SARS-CoV-2 
that were then treated with their Regeneron cocktail of antibodies that these monkeys clear the virus much faster than monkeys who are treated with a placebo. So that's some early promising results. And they've started a clinical trial. I guess these monoclonal antibodies, essentially what they are is like a designer, custom-made, bespoke, created version of the convalescent plasma treatment that we've talked about on Coronapod before. You know, that very much aims to just throw these antibodies into a person, but they do it direct by just taking blood from people that have survived coronavirus infection and hoping that the right antibodies are in there. Whereas these kind of monoclonal antibody treatments are trying to actually isolate specific antibodies and generate a specific response, which is, you know, more targeted, could potentially be much more powerful, but is also much more complicated, takes more time and is much more expensive. Yeah, the median price for antibody therapies in the US, according to a story that will be out by Heidi Ledford, says 15,000 to 200,000 per treatment. So they're quite pricey to manufacture. Also, apparently, it's not simple for generic manufacturers to just jump into the game either. And these things have to be injected as well or infused in some cases, I guess, which maybe adds another layer of complexity. And it seems like there are worries that there could be some disparity in different parts of the world. The monoclonal antibodies that I've read that have been sort of licensed and are being used seem to be disproportionately used in high income countries who can afford these sorts of prices. Yeah, for sure. I mean, remember how long it took to get antiretroviral drugs to Africa, you know, years and years and years. So there's that. And then also there's some question about What about low-income people in the U.S., low- and middle-income people? You know, sure, maybe we figured out how insurance can cover treatments that are expensive for rarer diseases, but COVID is so prevalent. You know, even making sure that everyone has enough access to this is going to be an issue, which is sort of why in our latest story, Heidi writes about how, as with vaccines right now, they're trying to ramp up manufacturing in advance of, you know, figuring out which vaccine works. Some people are saying what needs to happen is there needs to be sort of business agreements and efforts to figure out how to manufacture antibody-based therapies rapidly now and to put in the work to figure out what arrangements could help this move faster on the science side and also what kind of deals could be made. I think that's something that's been quite, I wouldn't say unique, but it's been something that's quite characteristic of the scientific response to a lot of things in COVID is that people have been thinking not just about how can we develop the therapy, but there have been calls at almost every stage to think about the distribution, think about the manufacturing all in one go. In most pharmaceutical development, those things happen in stages, whereas everything's been happening kind of concurrently here. And for good reason, because these things take a long time. Yeah. I mean, clearly some hurdles to overcome, not to put it bluntly, but it doesn't that people are quite excited, if that's the right word, about these potential treatments. Yeah, and they make a lot of sense. I mean, they're exciting enough that, for example, when I went up to Seattle in the beginning of March and I met with somebody named Helen Shu, an infectious disease specialist, she wasn't just working on this home-based test that I wrote about, but she was also involved with a study to isolate antibodies from people who are infected with COVID for this very reason. So from the very start, infectious disease people have been thinking that this is one potential powerful treatment. You know, it's worth pointing out that Regeneron, one of the companies involved now, they ended up having a successful Ebola drug that actually was proved to be better than remdesivir. Now this is for Ebola, totally different than COVID. But again, you know, antibody therapies have had some successes. And there are certainly a lot that are being worked on right now. I think there is an estimate that there's more than 70 antibody therapies that are currently being developed to treat and prevent COVID and various clinical trials along the way. I mean, again, it reminds me of, 
you know, there are equally large numbers, if not more vaccine trials. But, you know, there's a lot of effort going into these. And so something's likely to happen. You know, we just have to wait for that thing to happen at some point. Yeah. And I think what I've seen is earlier results for the Regeneron antibody cocktail. Those are expected in September which is very soon. And Eli Lilly's single antibody that they're testing out, that should have data in the fall. So we should know a lot more in the months to come. Well, it does seem like the back half of the year is going to be fairly important for a lot of different results as well, vaccines and what have you. And I'm sure we'll explore a lot of those later on. But for the time being, I'll hope you both join me next week for more of the latest coronavirus news. Noah and Amy, thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks, Ben. Noah and Amy there. Coming up later in this show, we'll be hearing what 16 headphone-wearing violinists sitting in a circle have revealed about synchronisation. Before that, though, Noah Baker is back, this time with the research highlights. There are more emperor penguins in Antarctica than was previously thought. Despite being the largest penguins around... Emperors are tricky to find, as they breed on sea ice in some of the coldest and least hospitable parts of the planet. But researchers at the British Antarctic Survey have been using high-resolution satellite imagery to discover unknown colonies, often at the edge of the known emperor-penguin breeding range. In a recent paper, they've reported eight new colonies and confirmed the existence of three more, bringing the total across the continent to 61. This suggests that there may be between 5 and 10% more emperor penguins than previously known. But the researchers warn that many of these new colonies are in places that are particularly vulnerable to the effects of climate change. Read more on that in Remote Sensing in Ecology and Conservation. Microsoft Excel, the widely used spreadsheet software, has been causing some headaches for geneticists by autocorrecting the names of genes. For example, if a researcher inputs the name March 1, which is short for membrane-associated ring CH type finger 1, Excel has an unfortunate tendency to reformat the name into a date, the 1st of March. These kinds of reformatting problems are surprisingly common, with one 2016 study finding that a fifth of papers had some kind of Excel error. The solution? Renaming the genes. Over the past year, some 27 human genes have been renamed to avoid Excel errors. And this week, the Hugo Gene Nomenclature Committee have announced new guidelines for naming genes and proteins so as to avoid autocorrect issues. Read the full announcement over at Nature Genetics. Reporter Ali Jennings has been finding out how an unusual instrumental arrangement has revealed new information about how humans synchronise. Sixteen violinists sit in a circle. They're each playing this repeating 12-note melody. The whole group is trying to play in synchrony, but each violinist can only hear their two immediate neighbours. This is because they're wearing noise-cancelling headphones and playing electric violins. The signals from each violin are sent to a control desk, behind which sits Moti Friedman of Bar-Ilan University in Israel. Moti controls what each violinist hears. This 
unusual setup comes from a collaboration between art and science. Actually, in the beginning, this experiment started as a demonstration by a science museum that wanted us to do something about synchronization. And only after we did the experiment, we realized that we found new science. People synchronize in many aspects of daily life. Audiences synchronize their clapping. Crowds synchronize their attention. Moti himself researches synchronization. In this setup, he connects 16 violin players in a network and precisely controls what each violinist hears. By gradually adding a time delay between what a musician plays and when her two connected neighbors hear it, Moti can upset the synchrony of the violinists in the network. Then Moti can see what the musicians do to try and re-synchronize. And this is something that people that try to actually play over the internet found out that when you have a small delay, what happens is that everybody starts to slow down. And this is what Moti sees with his violinists. When you start to increase the delay more and more, when the delay like is half a second or a second, and you are trying to play what what you hear for me, and I'm trying to play what I hear for you, there is no way. As the delay increases further, different patterns of synchronicity emerge across the whole network as the violinists valiantly try to synchronize with their immediate neighbors. Then, when the delay reaches two seconds, the network suddenly stabilizes. Each violinist believes he or she is playing in synchrony with both neighbors, but in reality, they're actually perfectly out of synchrony. When one violinist is at the beginning of the melody, her neighbors are both halfway through, and vice versa. They are now in what is known as antiphase. But the effect only works in groups of an even number, and here's where Moti observed something that had never been seen before. In odd-numbered networks, violinists would sometimes end up with neighbors who weren't in antiphase, but that neighbor would be ignored, and as a result, the network would remain stable. And often, a violinist wouldn't even realize they were ignoring anyone. When I talk to them after, what did you? find something different did you hear something different they didn't have a clue what i'm talking about from their point of view it was exactly the same they didn't even notice that they ignore one of them their brain did it automatically this result shows that human networks don't work like other networks humans can choose to simply ignore certain connections to preserve the stability of the network in this case to keep playing in antiphase with their neighbors designing artificial networks like this could help in other situations for example autonomous vehicles on a motorway can be considered a network of cars if one car slows down to change lanes it's better that the other cars ignore them rather than everyone slowing down in synchrony and making you late for work but it's not just about the science explains elad schneiderman a musician from stony brook university in the us the art and the science was really really depends on each other the science kind of need the art to do its experiment and from the other way around there is a kind of breakthrough in the, the artistic approach here which i need the, the scientist elad worked with moti to design the experiment 
For Elad, this represents a new way of making music. I did hear minimalistic music where the phrases coming back over and over and they play with face, but this is different because minimalistic music, the composer are controlling the big picture. So he decides everything. So here's a totally different thing. What will come out will be something that I don't have the total control on, not me and not the musician. The setup allows the network itself to control elements of the music. And that's what gives rise to such original and complex performances. And in the future, Moti and Elad plan to use different melodies and different instruments to explore what other compositions this setup can create, and to investigate the decision-making processes that underlie the conscious and unconscious choices the musicians make. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the sound of 16 professional violinists playing in imperfect synchrony. Ali Jennings there. To find out more about Moti and Alad's work, head over to the show notes where you'll find a link to their paper. Finally on the show, it's time for the weekly briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that have been highlighted in the Nature Briefing. And that is, of course, Nature's daily pick of science news and stories. Shamni, what's caught your eye over the past few weeks? Well, you know how I love strange and uh, quirky animals. Uh, so my pick for this week is about an anglerfish, uh, which is kind of maybe as quirky as you can get. So quick quiz for you, Ben. Do you know any good facts about anglerfish? Right. Um, they have appeared in Finding Nemo. Um, they frightened me quite a lot, I think, as a child when I saw one on a nature documentary because <laughs> they're weird-looking things, right? They have that kind of that lure, don't they, in front of, uh, in front of their heads and this mouth just full of, full of jagged teeth. What's not frightening about that? Yes, exactly. So they dangle this sort of strange bioluminescent organ out the front of their heads and use that to tempt in prey. But another weird thing about the anglerfish, or at least about some of them, because there are actually hundreds of species, but the um, story I've been looking at is about a few of those species. Um, They have really weird, I was going to say mating rituals, but it's not so much a ritual. It's that in many species, the females are really huge. The males are really tiny. And when a male finds a female, it will bite onto her and then fuse with her body. So it's like attached to her body, like often, sometimes permanently. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of speechless. That's, that is a bit out there. I mean, that's some, is that like a parasitism? I mean, what, what, how are we defining that? So I don't think it's bad for the female. Um, so the sort of extra nutrients she has to provide to the male are kind of small and she can have multiple males and just have like them producing any sperm that she might need depending on the species but the reason that it's generally good is that when you're swimming around in the deep sea because this is um deep sea species of, of anglerfish um is that they kind of want to if once they found a mate they kind of want to stick with it um because apparently it's just really hard to actually find mates down there so if you find one you know don't let them go and for the male, it, it kind of fuses its tissue with the female. It actually atrophies away loads of other bits of its body that it doesn't need and gets its nutrients, all its nutrients from the female's blood supply. Um, and then it's there when the eggs get laid, they can be immediately fertilized. 
Um, but as well as just kind of being this like weird and slightly creepy way of mating, um, there's been this mystery because of the fact that their tissues fuse together and they're using the same blood supply. There's always been this question of how their immune systems worked. Because, you know, if you think about if you have an organ transplant, even if you match the donor and the recipient really well, if you put foreign tissue in in someone's body, their immune system is just going to be like, no, no, thank you. Don't want this. Um, Which is why you give people immunosuppressants to um, stop the immune system attacking things that you don't want it to attack. So with anglerfish, we've got two completely separate individuals with their tissues fused together so the question was how do they manage this which begs the question how do they manage this Ah, i'm glad you asked benjamin so yes this is what the new research has has been looking into and it's basically a genetic study of a whole bunch of different anglerfish species and what they found is with particularly with the species that do the fusing they have lost key genes in their immune system in, in certain parts of their immune system so that whole like sections of their immune system is missing to the extent that if I was a a person and I didn't have this much of my immune system, like I would be in serious trouble. Well, the immune system is is a fabulously complicated thing, you know, just in in general. But you mentioned sort of a sort of transplants and stuff there. I mean, one can see that there may be some benefit from this finding sort of further down the road for for human sort of tissue transplantation and what have you. Yeah, and I think that's why they're particularly interested in this because if we can work out to some extent how the anglerfish can survive with this massively dampened immune system, maybe that could be of use for medical interventions in the future. But that's still very much the open question on this one. Well, let's stick with sort of animal oddities this week, Sharmini, and... uh... Let's imagine you were a beetle uh, in in a pond and you were eaten by a frog. What do you imagine would happen? Oh, I was really happy being a beetle in a pond until you ate me with a frog. Okay, so it's not going to be good, is it? I guess I'll die slowly from digestive juices well you mean this is what i thought too right like but it's not the case for one particular sort of aquatic beetle and uh, and there's a researcher in japan who's been feeding these beetles to a pond frog that it often encounters uh, as it sort of goes about its daily life and something rather peculiar happens now it turns out more than 90 percent of them survived and they passed through the sort of stomach and the stomach acid and through the intestines and all the rest of it and uh, and made a bit of a, well, how can I put this, a bit of a backdoor exit. Um, and uh, there there is a video that you can watch of this. Oh. And uh, and I, I mean, I can't read froggy facial expressions, but I'm detecting a little bit of surprise oh, no. in the frog's face when this beetle just sort of pops out and, uh, and off it goes on its merry way. Oh, man. Was this just someone feeding beetles to their pet frogs and then it accidentally... Just came out the other end. Well, this story did stand out to me because it reminded me of something else, and uh, and it was uh, a toad that was fed a uh, a bombardier beetle, and this beetle sort of spews out these kind of noxious fumes, and then the the toad threw it up right after an hour. And it turns out it's the same researcher who's done this work, and and it looks like he's really really interested in uh, in sort of insect defences, and and it turns out there's that well they they are multitude. It, it looks like, um, and and in this case then with with the uh, sort of pass through situation um it seems like the legs of the beetle are important if the legs are stuck together the, the beetle gets digested and maybe it's stimulating the uh, the muscles on the back of the frog to maybe sort of 
release or relax and uh, and let the beetle escape. There's a lot of important questions I think that remain to be answered with this research. Wait, so, so it's actually like actively doing something. So if it's if it's can't move its legs, it's just going to get digested. Therefore, it must be physically doing something inside the frog to get it through unscathed. Yeah, apparently so, and it's quite the journey. At six hours on average to uh, from oh. from one end to the other, but the record uh, was six minutes, which is a, uh, I mean, goodness me. <laughs> it's definitely an unusual evolutionary response to this whole predator prey dynamic. Just like, yeah, eat me, come on then. Well, I've been looking into this, as you might imagine, and uh, and it's totally ruined my uh, YouTube search algorithm, by the way. But it kind of turns out that that survival of digestion is kind of rare, but it does exist in you know kind of snails as well, and obviously these beetles too. So, so yeah, I'm sure there's many, many more sort of weird and wonderful ones to be discovered. See, this is why I love evolution. It's so cool. And that is maybe why people should sign up for the Nature Briefing to get more stories like this delivered directly to their inbox. We'll put up a link of where to sign up and links to today's stories in this week's show notes. That's all for this week. As always, if you want to get in touch with us, then you can reach us on Twitter, we're at Nature Podcast, or send us an email, we're podcast at nature.com. I'm Shamini Vandell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.